Can you sail under the command of a pirate? Can you not? This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Words are things. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Careful about calling people out of their names. I kept coming back to it, just trying to figure out where in the world we had gone so wrong that it had ended up here. Well, I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your huckleberry. Are you not entertained? Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Fight's not with you, Holiday. I beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? What we've got here is... Failure to communicate. Some man you just can't read. You keep using that word. I don't know think it means what you think it means. You don't tell your pappy how to cut the electorate. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communication. Oh, yeah. Are you not That's a fine thing And welcome to the Pirate Professor Podcast. This is your captain speaking. What's up, crew? How are you doing today? Today, um, I'm coming to you from the... That was really loud. Today, I'm very excited and I have no idea what's going on. Coming from the cabin on this particular episode. It's kind of interesting. Um... Yesterday, it was in the 70s. Storm blew through last night. Tornado was dropping out of the sky. Fortunately, not around here. Uh, not exactly right around here. Uh, a little north of here, one came through and left about a 20-mile um, path of damage, mostly in um, kind of more... Uh, up in the Ozarks, not a lot of houses, so some damage, some injuries, but no fatalities. Iowa was a different story. Um, you know, that was one of the things when I first got the boat, and you're telling people, you know, local folks, hey, we're going to go down to the coast, live on a boat, and people are like, what about hurricanes? Hurricanes are terrifying, and I'm like, Tornadoes are terrifying. Um, see, the, there's a difference. I mean, level of damage. Like a, a tornado can do every bit as much damage, if not more damage, than a hurricane in a isolated area. The difference is, like, tornadoes are kind of like playing Russian roulette. You just sort of wait to see if one drops on your head in the middle of the night. Um, 
and chances are they're not. But I guess it's also, you know, rushing around playing the lottery. Um, in some cases, they do. So, um, I've never actually had one roll right over the top of me. I've seen one kind of in a distance, um, you know. But you come through and you see, you're just sort of waiting. Like, you, the sky turns a certain shade of green. You see that wall cloud coming. Everything gets super still. And then you just sort of wait. Just wait. Um, hurricanes, on the other hand, you know, like, um, I rode one, I rode out Hurricane Hannah a few, uh, year before last on the boat, which, you know, it was a category one, borderline category two, uh, I rode it out on the dock, um, which wasn't that much better, I would I wouldn't imagine, because um, the dock started breaking apart. Um, but the thing with the hurricanes, though, like you know they're coming um, days in advance. Like you know, like you know, they, they, we're in June first starts hurricane season, and right now I'm starting to see the early predictions of what this particular season is going to be like. It looks like. Right now, it's shaping up to be another uh, La Nina um, year, which typically means more hurricanes in the Atlantic. Um, but, you know, in this day and age, who really knows? And beyond that, hang on, I'm trying to adjust my volume here, make things, all things equal. And I just lost my train of thought. Oh, hurricanes! Everything's running. This is what. This is the problem with getting old. I don't. I, I say that I was this bad when I was in my twenties. Well, crap! I just lost everything I was going to say. Doesn't matter. Um, hurricanes! You see them coming. You know they're coming. Um, you can get out of the way if you want to. You can tie your boat up and hope for the best. You can. You know, if you've got a place to go and you know the direction of it, you can, and you're in a boat, you can get out of the way. Like, there's enough time to get several, you know, even in a sailboat, you can, in a sailboat, as long as you've got decent wind, you can, you can knock out a hundred, hundred and fifty, hundred to 150 miles a day, you know, if, as long as you have wind, uh, well, you know, you've got a motor too, so you can still, you can knock out about, you know, average about six knots. 24 hours a day um, you can make some distance in that amount of time um, but it's one of those you just have to you have to commit to it and do it in advance and as long as you know like the hurricane is going to go one direction and you go the opposite direction so there's you know there's that kind of stuff um, but tornadoes mm, eh, you don't really know you just don't know so you just kind of hope for the best. And so last night was one of those. Um, it actually started making me think. I probably, it's, maybe I'll do an, I'm probably not going to record two of these in one day. But it might. Um, it got me thinking about like preparing for 
rough weather. Um, some stuff I've been doing around here um, at the cabin, and some uh, some new stuff on the horizon for the on the boat front. Um, I'll I'll say that that information for a little bit later. Not much later. It'll be coming pretty soon. Um, there's exciting things happening. Very exciting things happening. And some change. Change is good. Anyway, um, it's the idea of like just preparing for heavy weather. Uh, so I was thinking about because yesterday I was just, I've been working on the cabin. So one of the things, the projects I've been doing since I've been back uh, in the past week is I'd ordered um, back around the first of the year. I'd ordered some, actually, no, no, maybe I got them December. Yeah, I got them like December of last year. Um, I ordered uh, a small-ish solar system for the cabin. Um, I've already got one on the boat that I put in a couple of years ago. Um, But for a long time, I've wanted to have solar power at the cabin. Um, And so I've I've got everything pretty much done except wiring it up i've got so i had to install the panels earlier in the week up on the roof uh i haven't i just haven't wired them all in i had to build a an electrical box which is essentially it's a four foot wide by two feet deep by six foot tall box under my carport um that holds all the batteries and uh, gadgetry that goes along makes that thing work Anyway, so that's built. I finished that up this morning by uh, putting the door on it. Um, but I've got the like the charge controller in it and the inverters in there. I'm just, they're not hooked up as of yet. And I've got to get um, some more batteries to get that all set up and going. And then um, the plan is to try to hook it up to the electrical grid as well. Uh, so it can, when I'm months that I'm not around that thing can feed back into the grid and provide credits uh, and make my you know meter run backwards so that part's pretty exciting um it's very exciting actually it's kind of it's we're right there on the cusp it's like i can see it i can see the finish line but we're just not quite there yet so i'm hoping that's going to come together sooner rather than later i've just got to pick up a few more things and get it wired um so today um this is gonna be a little bit longer one because it's an interview with my friend larry um larry cox who uh, anointed me appointed me as the admiral of the um order of the gull which for whatever reason i forgot to have him tell that story um larry's an interesting cat um he was introduced to me uh, by a mutual friend uh, named Norman Suggs, who's uh, unfortunately no longer with us. Norman was one of those guys that I met, uh, oh, probably 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and Norman was always the most rational human being in the room. No matter what was going on, Norman just had, had it together. Uh, he seemed he was just a voice of reason and like that calm space in the storm. Um, 
so when I started covering the um, all the shenanigans that were going on on the Mexican border um, a few years ago during the Trump administration, I uh, I didn't know anybody, and, and I've, I've talked about it in this past. I just like I was two and a half hours away from the biggest story in the country, and I just grabbed my camera and went down there, um, just without having a clue. Like I, you know, I was I just I was going to figure it out as I go. And um, Norman, knowing that I was down there, said, "Hey, you need to go meet this guy." And um, this guy was named Larry Cox, who uh, kind of reminds me of Norman in that sense of he's always, he's sort of the steady figure in, a, in the middle of a lot of chaos. And Larry is, um, like me, he used to work for the United Methodist Church. Um, like me, he saw a lot of things during that time and uh, kind of as a result um, that sort of caused him to, st- I don't want to say step outside of it, but step beyond, um, and do his own thing. And so him and his uh, wife set up a, um, a refuge or a shelter, um, in Matamoros, uh, which is the border city, uh, that I was going to. And originally and he'll talk about this. This is like 20 years ago. He set it up to sort of help the destitute in that um, that city. And then times changed. And he had a front row seat to all of it. Over the you know, and from the rise of the cartels to, you know, the um, immigration crisis. So what makes this particular thing uh, unique is is something I'd like to to mention, and that is the way we talk about things matters. Like one of the things I used to I used to tell my students in my my mass com class was, uh, "What's the most dangerous word? What's the most dangerous four letter word in the English language?" And, you know, they'd him haul around, like, love or hate or no, 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 no. The word is fine. F-I-N-E. Because the funny thing about human communication is the, the words that we say don't necessarily equate to the thing that we mean. Like, you can say fine a hundred different ways. And that word strikes fear in the heart of men when their significant others, when asked how they're doing, respond with, oh, it's fine. I'm fine. And you all know what I'm talking about. You can say fine and actually mean fine. You can say fine and mean the absolute opposite of fine. Sometimes fine is a dare. I dare you to believe that I'm fine. And so we add all this confusion and, and, and if you want the technical term is we call it coding and encoding or encoding and decoding. So our words, and, and this is one of the things, um, this is one of the reasons why we're really bad at, at reading like, uh, especially like ancient texts, like religious text. 
is because very often our words are absolutely pregnant with meaning. And if you're reading it through a text message, as opposed to someone hearing it, you have a, you can't hear the tone. You can't hear the way that they talk about it. You can't hear the inflection that they talk about. You lose a lot of, of what we would call richness of that particular channel. Um, and so there's a level of sincerity that you miss out on. So, um, why am I bringing this up? Well, this whole semester I've been, I guess this whole year, hell, longer than that, I've been sort of confounded by this question of how do we know it's true? Like as a journalist, I go in and, and there's a set of rules that I sort of apply uh, to when I talk to people who I'm willing to talk to, who I'm not willing to talk to, who I'm willing to believe, who I'm not willing to believe. And, you know, and, and I've been doing it long enough that, you know, you can sort of smell BS. Um, but very often kind of what I'm looking for um, in the, the stories is kind of like who. Like who doesn't have something to gain um, by this one way or the other? Like who like who doesn't have a dog in the fight? Uh, and so a lot of times, like if I'm looking for you know opinions on like American stuff, I go to um, new sources that aren't American. Um, when we're talking about the immigration world stuff that was going on. Like, I'm not going to necessarily take the opinion of a politician uh, or some kind of talking head who lives their life wearing a suit and, you know, sitting in an office in Washington. I want to go talk to people who actually live there, um, who have lived there, who have seen things, who have, have watched the evolution of an area. Like, I watched the evolution of an area over two years. Larry has watched it over 20 years. Um, and so I guess the thing, what I want you to do in this particular episode is I want you to listen to the way he talks about things. Um, Larry's just a guy, uh, Larry's a guy who had a heart for people and decided to, try to make the world a little bit better place um, in his own small way. Um, he's not, he's, he's fairly quiet. Um, Larry actually gave me one of the biggest compliments I've ever had during all that time. Because um, one of my strategy, strategy, is, it seems like a terrible way to say that. Um, when I went down there, one of the things that I kept seeing was just in, in one of the big complaints I would hear from locals was like journalists will just sort of come in. They'll spend 24 or 48 hours. They'll get their like whatever tragedy story that they want, which, you know, some of us just kind of consider tragedy porn, you know, for all you doom scrollers out there, you just get this heart wrenching story. You get back on the plane, you fly back home and you don't really get full context of things. Um, and so what I, I didn't want to go in with any, I wasn't on deadline. I didn't have anything. Uh, I just wanted to find out like, 
I want to just sort of see and watch and do a thing that so many people don't do anymore. And that was just simply listen. And so that's kind of what I did. Uh, and I just, I would just keep going back and going back and going back and going back and talking to everybody, you know, from people like Larry, um, my other friend, uh, Jody, who's an immigration attorney, and then hundreds of migrants. Um, and you know, some border patrol folks when, you know, I could talk to them as long as they didn't know I was a journalist, they would talk then as soon as they found out I was a journalist, they would stop talking. Um, you know, I probably would have talked to some cartel people. I probably did talk to some cartel people and didn't even know it. Who knows? Um, you know, that's just kind of the way it goes. But the compliment Larry gave me, uh, was that a couple of New York times reporters showed up on his doorstep, uh, unannounced and Larry doesn't let you in unless Larry knows who you are. And Larry just told him, Hey, um, no, I'm sorry. You can't come in, but if you'll talk to my friend, Billy reader, um, he can tell you everything you need to know. And I was like, and then he texted me and told me, Hey, this, these are the people I told, I gave him your number. I never, and for the record, I never heard from them ever again. Um, but as a storyteller, um, that felt good. I'll be honest. That felt good. Like I was like, okay, I've earned the trust of somebody. Um, now here's my job not to screw it up. So as time goes on, um, I went back, uh, a couple of weeks ago to the place, you know, across back over into Mexico. Uh, I wanted to see where the refugee camp was. Uh, it was this place that I saw grow from absolutely nobody there to a camp of thousands of people. And now it's just a fenced off area and you can just see, you can just see all the, like the shadows of where everybody was. Like you can see where the old camps were and kind of how the ground's been, dug out and changed and you can just it just you can see that thousands of people once lived in this area and now they're all gone um because mexico about a year ago mexico cleaned out the camp um so after i did that later that day i drove up to larry's house and uh sat down with him and kind of just talked to see like where he is, uh, and hear his story. And, and so today I just want to share a little bit of Larry with you. Uh, I hope you like it. I know I did. So, um, hope you learned something.
sure he's the best general manager for the for the team but I followed the Cowboys because I saw them when I was a kid and I got I have so many friends in the Dallas area that are happy when the Cowboys win uh-huh. for my part I don't watch that that many of their games it's a strange so the Cowboys from Ar- if you're from Arkansas, you consider the Cowboys your team. Like they're well, that's good. Uh, well, partially, you know, it's like well, 
the running joke is, well, we own them. <laughs> so, uh, is, is Jerry Jones popular up there? Up, up north in Arkansas? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, just because there's not too many billionaires in Arkansas, it's a... And so he's popular from that standpoint. It's not that like he ever comes. It was... Um, so Yale County, where I'm actually... Uh, sorry, I used to live. Um, his... And that's the area he's from. Um, the western side of the county, and, and to kind of put it in perspective, they, they refer to Yale County as the free state of Yale. It's it's very... Uh, if you ever had True Grit... That's wow. where that's where you know the, the main character, uh, wow, Maddie Ross was from. Um, I'll be and uh, but they. Um, I was driving down there one time. There's an area called it's a city called Danville, little city. It's a town, a couple of thousand people. And uh, I was going somewhere, and I was like, "Man, they've got a really nice airport." And uh, this was like in, back in the '90s. And somebody's like, oh, yeah, that's Jerry Jones built that so he could come visit his mother-in-law. Or as for his, <laughs> so his wife could come visit her mom. And it was just like, oh, okay, well, if you can do that. And when he, back at, yeah, it was the late 90s, back, I guess the last time they won a Super Bowl, like Troy Eggman was playing for them. And, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, like a lot of those guys owned property there. Like they had, you know, the lake. And it was like, <laughs> and you would see the occasionally like the Cowboys bus rolling through town and, He's done an amazing job as an owner. You got to hand him that. Yeah. As far as the team succeeding, we'll look at it this way. For the last uh, 25 years, the team has probably been just slightly above average. Mm -hmm. And to take a slightly above average product or service in any field and have the increase in value that, <laughs> that, the Cowboys have enjoyed enjoyed under his ownership. He had to have been doing something right. Yeah. Just imagine if he really fielded a good team. <laughs> yeah. He might be worth a hundred billion instead of five billion. That is true. All right. Well, I'm rolling, so let's just go ahead. Oh, yeah. and Jump in there. I, just, I start talking. Well, you realize <laughs> that my experience with. Um, Migrants, immigrants, migrantes, asylum seekers, refugees, all those terms are sort of still, I'm learning what they mean. They mean different things to different people. I didn't pay much attention to what was going on with refugees or asylum seekers before October of 2018. It was too busy with our refuge. Mm -hmm. uh, on occasion, a friend of mine who's a... <clears throat> pastor of a Disciples of Christ Church here in Los Fresnos is also a Cuban. He has helped, he helped uh, a lot of people, it still does. And on occasion, I helped uh, a couple of individuals, a family from Cuba mm -hmm. uh, when they made it over here. I remember that at our, our little refuge or shelter in Matamoros was basically for sick people, but we opened it up for Cubans who got trapped, who got trapped in Mexico in January of 2017, I believe. Mm -hmm. The Obama administration in the last few days of President Obama's term removed the wet 
what's it called, wet foot, dry foot policy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which maybe that makes sense. I have no idea. But when he did that, he did it all just this is the way it is this point going forward. There were probably 2,000 Cubans who were in the jungle along from Venezuela all the way to the border of Mexico trying to make it in. They got trapped. I, I told this pastor, his name is Felibberto Pereira, that if need be, our refuge would be available for any Cubans who uh, had been trapped in Mexico. I was worried about them because I'd heard stories about being easily identified as Cubans mm-hmm. and then being abused along their journey. And the actually they have an accent which is a de- easily identifiable and uh, uh, they become a target. So that I, I had, the, that's about all I knew until October of 2018 when um, Mexican immigration asked us at our our shelter in Matamoros. Again, it was for ill and abandoned people primarily. Yeah, but they, t- tell, but me, they, tell me about your shelter first before we go before we keep going. So, oh, okay. I, I, you know, I've I've seen it. I've been there. Uh, we, we've moved. Oh, that's right. I, I, <laughs> we, I saw your old one. <laughs> yeah, you saw the old one. The new one is called Casa de Paz, uh-huh. and uh, it is located in a much safer part of town. Okay, the Colonia where our old place was located uh, was at the southeastern edge of town. A lot, and there was a back route to the garbage dump, mm-hmm. and there was just a lot of things that took place along that route. Uh, in particular, uh, I call it the drug war in Matamoros in 2010 and in parts of 2011. That that dirt road running alongside that really heavily polluted drainage canal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where a lot of people came in from the group trying to take over possession of the drug trade in, in Matamoros at that time. If you Google it, you'll see the parties where the Gulf cartel is, they're still in power. I understand at least they are. And they were being um, attacked, I guess, mm-hmm. by the setas, Los Setas, to take control. And we got, since. We were right on the road that they used to go in and out. We we noticed how unsafe it could be and, and actually received some threats and had to leave in 2011, my wife and I. Hey, you guys lived there at the time. Right. We, okay. we lived there. And, and anyway, um, our, uh, it, it's, it's an area that, in retrospect, I wish we had moved out a lot sooner than we did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're in a, a much safer part of town. And our focus right now is on 40 asylum seekers at a time. We have that many from five different countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have a list of 10 children that we're trying to help. Uh, one right now with a type of dental surgery, the two-year-old that just really was in intense pain big big problem we had to find a specialist to mm-hmm. operate on him and another is an eight-year-old who lives with uh, muscular dystrophy Duchenne mm-hmm. and it's really a nasty illness that he's already lost the ability to walk 
so we'll be fitting him with specialty equipment and helping him. We helped out his uncle uh, from around 2004 until 2013, I want to say. His uncle made it to age 21. He was a journalism student, by the way, at a mm-hmm. university there in Matamoros. Really good guy. Edgar was his name. So anyway, we my my hope is that our government will figure out a way to move the asylum seekers into the United States and treat them fairly for the duration of their applications for asylum. Mm-hmm. And failing that, find something safe for them in somewhere in Mexico. Uh, the State Department labels Matamoros a no-travel zone. Right. And they do it because of the crime. Right. So when, if you look at the some of the announcements or pronouncements by, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's immigration or homeland security, whatever they're called, uh, they say that Mexico can give an adequate humanitarian response so it's okay for the asylum seekers to remain in Mexico under the Mex migrate. Let's see, what's it called? Migrant protection protocols. Mm-hmm. Well, doesn't that sound absurd? Right. <laughs> so, uh, but if we if if I, I want to get back to that list of children needing early childhood intervention, and along the way we'll meet uh, adults who um, need help as well. And that's what. Uh, the group that I interviewed when I was there at your place. Um, and that was one of the things one of them told me was like, they, they won't feel, <clears throat> they wouldn't feel safe until they were in the United States because that was the only, that was, it was a country of laws. And I, and I thought it was pretty ironic that the very laws that they were desperately trying to get behind were the laws keeping them out. It, <clears throat> there's some things I'd like to say, that I'm not going to be able to say because I don't want to put anyone at risk. Mm -hmm. But uh, look what's going on in Reynosa right now. If you you look at something, just a note put out by Angry Tias and Abuelas just this past week, it's horrible what they're what what they're facing there in terms of extortion and rapes and all sorts of things. The um, so far, we have been left alone. Mm-hmm. But, and this is something that I think about constantly, how can I say that I'm really giving shelter to the 40 that we have? They have a place to sleep, clean bathroom, place to eat. Uh, we try to make them as comfortable as possible. They're not safe. They're only safe because nobody nobody's choosing to bother them at present at present right i uh that's no way to live and and actually for the children in the colonia where we were before Mm -hmm. they face a constant danger themselves uh the report i saw from renosa is that some of the children as young as 10 years of age that are being taken off to do chores for Whoever's in power up there. Really? Uh, I don't know if it's the same group that's in power in Matamoros. I don't, I, I, those things I don't know. Right. I just know that that 
in trying to give a compassionate response to the ones we have, the asylum seekers we have, I can't, I can't, I can't sit there with them and say, you're safe here. I wish I could. Let's talk a little bit about Matamoros uh, for a second. Just, I, I went there this morning. Just to, I haven't been there in a couple of years, or it's probably a year. Uh, I haven't been there since they cleaned the camp out, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to see. And so I, I walked across the bridge this morning. Just, you know, it's all gone. You can still see the all the traces of it, but it was uh, all the ruts, but it's all fenced off now. But I was there. I was walking through the plaza. Maybe 10 minutes, and I, you know, I heard a guy who's an American man ask he met up with another guy and i heard him asking like you know basically he was looking for the girls and so what level of prostitution he was after at that particular point i didn't know i didn't ask i'm in the wrong area but i'm just like okay it was just sort of that reminder of where i am now that's a that's a pity it really that is sad that i i You know, I don't, that part of Matamoros I really don't know about. Mm-hmm. I, I have friends who uh, live on $10 a day le- doing legal things, trying to work at a factory or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I have friends who are in the mayor's office. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the doctors we've gone to and the medical, all, all the medical field, I've just met a lot of really good people. Yeah. I uh, I know that there's a history along the border of people with resources coming into Matamoros and other places and using it for um, all sorts of activities that I don't participate in and I don't, uh, uh, it, well, it troubles me. It, it's very sad. Yeah. There is a great opportunity along the border <laughs> mm-hmm. for it to be a lot different. I don't know if we'll ever get there. And you've been there 20 years, right, roughly? You, you right. Can't, you, you, I, I basically lived in Matamoros from year 2001 until 2011. And you came from the Dallas region originally. That's right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in Dallas... <clears throat> For about eight years, from 92 to 2000, 2001, um, I ran something called the Methodist Warehouse. And the, the goal was to take uh, kids who were on the street and give them a million repetitions with a hammer <laughs> driving a nail. You rem- I don't know if you remember the Million Man March. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where it came from. I said, well, I wonder what would happen if uh, these guys that I've met, if they had a million repetitions swinging a hammer, building something, and, and if I paid them, I paid them for 20 hours of work a week. Mm-hmm. And there was, there were, I think I worked with about eight to 10 guys at a time. And uh, some of them have done pretty good. Mm-hmm. They've done pretty good. They were, most of them were probably targets of the Crips. Mm-hmm or one of the Mexican gangs that operated at the time. So I did that for from 92 until 2001. It, when I went to Mexico in 2000, 2001, I, dates or whatever they are, 
I remembered feeling safer in Matamoros than I, than I did West Dallas. Really? Okay. At that time, it, the the nation's largest housing development was still standing, and there were just a lot of problems. A lot of problems. Uh, the uh, and I worried about the guys. I, they just we got stopped by the police. You know, what are you doing? And I looked at them and I went. Well, this truck I'm driving is registered with a Methodist church, and these two guys who are sitting beside me mm-hmm. are students with me at, at the Methodist warehouse, which I just pulled out of about 100 yards back. Yeah. And, you know, just, and I wonder what would have happened to those guys if, uh, if I hadn't been there. But, you know, <laughs> I remember this one of the guys, his name is, Tiger, a uh, really nice guy. It's kind of scary looking, but nice guy. He was riding a bicycle. Now, by the way, all these guys had outstanding warrants for either driving without a dri- valid driver's license or something like that. Right. I tried to get him to take care <clears throat> of him, but it, it, it was expensive to do so. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Tiger was driving one Sunday to go on a bicycle to go see his grandfather. Just as he was passing Methodist Hospital in Dallas, two two or three hospital police came out and arrested him. And we didn't know this for about three or four days. Tiger just disappeared. Mm-hmm. We found out he was put he was taken to Lou Starrett uh, Lou Starrett Jail, and he'd been there for two or three days. And what had happened was that the hospital police had a new fingerprint system that was connected to the Dallas Police Department somehow, mm-hmm. and they wanted to try it out. So they walked out the door, and <laughs> there was Tiger. They grabbed him, and Tiger went with him, and they fingerprinted him, and he had an outstanding warrant for driving without a <laughs> license. So he's, he's in loose terror for three or four days. <laughs> and I said, I remember, Tiger, why didn't you call us? Well, I was okay. I was getting fed. <laughs> three, Just, three hots in a cot. <laughs> I went, don't ever do that again. We were really worried that something had happened to him. Right. I don't know. Uh, it, this is a, a side. It means nothing. But I, I um, a couple of years ago, I had some friends who were green who were trying to prevent Methodist Hospital from putting in a wellness system mm-hmm. or a department or whatever. Mm-hmm. They were going to knock down ten mature pecan trees, uh-huh. <laughs> and and um, they had everything signed up so that it was prevented. And then a guy that I know uh, went in at the last moment and said, "Well, my wife signed this petition to." to prevent the expansion into where this grove was. And uh, she's from China, and she doesn't know what she's signing. <laughs> the truth is she speaks English perfectly. She knew exactly what she was doing, but her, uh-huh. her husband is such a, a rascal. He got his way, so the, the, the whatever petition they signed became invalid, and Methodist Hospital expanded, I suppose. Just... 
I, I worry about those 10 pecan trees, though. God, I love pecan trees. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, I, that you didn't really want to hear that. But, <laughs> That's all right. Okay, uh, so, where were we? Oh, okay. yeah. So I ended up, uh, yeah, in Matamoros for 10 years. And I, um, I did, when I went, I didn't speak Spanish. So I had, uh, the people in the community where I was at Colonia Calderechos Humanos uh, taught me how to, got me started on speaking Spanish. And... Um, I don't know if you can hear Kayla. She's yeah. <laughs> anyway. That's where I met Kayla, and one thing led to another. But I, I just, and I, I, there was a lot of drug dealing going on in the community, and I suppose prostitution. I, I just, I just looked at people if they invited me into their lives, and. Um, I had a reputation for someone who would listen and help. So that's all I did. And it didn't make any difference to me who they were or what they were. If they needed needed a helping hand, I was going to do my best. Mm-hmm. I miss that because, of course, I'm here in Texas now, and I doubt I'll ever get back to Matamoros to do that. So it's sort of managing this shelter and this list of children needing early childhood intervention mm-hmm. from a distance. And I'll do that as long as I can. Now, are you going into into the city anymore? Um, you... I I am. I'll be seventy two on Saturday. Uh-huh. Uh, I have a heart issue. Uh, I for I, I take very serious the warnings about the coronavirus. Okay. Now, once the coronavirus is passed, and then if I have someone that I can trust to take care of Kayla. Kayla has a seizure disorder and intellectual disabilities. There's a lot of moving parts here. So if I can get that handled, then I'll start going back over again. Okay. I miss it too much. Okay. Now going back to, to that camp when you, or the encampment that you said is no longer there. Mm -hmm. Um, it looks to me like what our government decided to do was that was such an eyesore and they had the tent court you remember you could you yeah. could see the tent court from the encampment right. as i recall yep they wanted to get rid of it cuz it was such an eyesore so they they moved all those people out a friend of mine took a whole lot of them into his shelter he had, hasn't been running a shelter before that and he started it up thinking i'll have these guys here for two or three weeks they were they were people who had gone through the court system with MPP, but there was, and maybe they'd been denied, but they were in the process of appealing or whatever that looked like. And they were not able to cross on the first crossing. Mm-hmm. Enough noise was made, I suppose, and they got those people across. And But he, my friend, ended up with even more people coming in from other I think he may have 200 people there with him right now. Well, that was, that was basically your story too, is, you know, it was, you had a refuge that was designed to take care of destitute local people. And then it was, Hey, can you, can you, can you house these, these people for a little bit? And then, you know, five turned into, (laughs) we had over a hundred on occasion. How many, how how many of you housed total since all this started? Nearly 2000. Okay. And from 20, 27 different countries. I, I was starting out on talking that 
my knowledge of immigration matters is very limited. It, I, I have the seven-year battle to get Kayla back from being detained by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and I have the almost three and a half years of experience of asylum seekers that have come to our refuge, and I, I know some of their stories, uh, and I, and I, I, I have questions mm-hmm. about from those experiences about the things that we do. I, I um, for example, if you were given a ticket by a local policeman. Do you want the local police to decide whether you're guilty or innocent? No. It just seems like that's what's going on with an asylum seeker who goes in. My understanding is they can cross the river or they, or it used to be, I don't know what, I don't know what's certain anymore. They could cross the river or they could walk across the bridge and go, I'm filing for asylum. Right. Now, lawyers said to me that automatically that they, they're going to be charged with a misdemeanor. And if eventually their case is approved, then that misdemeanor is erased and they're given a permission to be in the U S. So you hear all these people saying, well, they're illegal this and they've created crimes. I went, stop think about what the process is and if my my understanding is is when they walk onto the united into the united states whether at the river or at a bridge that there's a misdemeanor there but it'll be cleared once your case is heard or if if you don't get accepted then they deport you right right so i think it's i think a lot of people would get confused about those things but but do you but for me uh, what I don't understand is why the people who are hearing initially, you know, you can be detained by Border Patrol, but the group listening to your story, what part of government should they be in? Mm-hmm. I, I, Okay, and we're going to finish here pretty soon, and I'll fix you something to eat, sweetheart. I, I don't. I think that that person needs special training, mm-hmm. maybe special compensation, and, and maybe <laughs> maybe they need a lot of vacation times because I, in my listening to the some of the people that would sh- wanted to share what happened to them mm-hmm. in their home countries, whether it's Cameroon or Venezuela, or. Honduras or what happened in Mexico to them it it wore me out I, I just I, I I wasn't sleeping too well horrible stories uh, and, I, and so yeah. someone listening to that day after day in this asylum process I don't know if I were running that program obviously I'm not but if I were I'd I'd have to go I want to know about the health of the people who are listening to these stories. Cool. Well, I can, yeah, and, I can. And, and and make sure that they're they're being they're in a good position. I want anyone involved in the application process, whether it's an attorney representing the asylum seeker mm-hmm. or a government lawyer 
or the person hearing the case, the judge, I want them to be all at their very best, well-rested. The most exhausted people I met during my time down there were, were immigration attorneys. On the, uh, on the representing the migrants, you know, and it, oh, was, yeah. it was just the hours that they would have to keep. Yeah. Um, and it was, and it was, you know, they would show up to the, you know, the tent courts, uh, just to find that nobody on the government side had prepared anything, or there was, you know, some really questionable documents that were getting presented and, yeah. you know, there, and this was just day after day after day after day after day until yeah. they just, you know, what, um, I've heard that from a couple of attorneys that, you know, I watch people age ten years and two. You, you know, ten, you know, two years. I watched them age ten, yeah. uh, and just you know, seeing them when it started, and then seeing them, you know, toward the, you know, two years later. Um, it's a it when you're listening to their stories, uh, and then that you, you know, just and then you go, okay, our government has got a program that forces them to stay in Matamoros. That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm going to tell you about one of the young okay. ladies we had. She's she's now in Honduras mm-hmm. with her. I think she, her daughter is maybe six. She was with us when the daughter was three. She went through the process in a tent court. And she, after the second hearing, I think she made up her mind, they're never going to let me in. Mm-hmm. So she came back to... To Matamoros, she's in her her refuge, and she decides that she maybe the best thing for her is just to go back home. And so, at that time, there's there was some UN organization which would pay the airfare to get get them back home. Mm-hmm. So we contacted that group, and and they initially agreed to take her, but mm-hmm. then when they got the details, they said, "Sorry, we can't do it." Why can't you do it? It's unsafe for her to go back <laughs> to to that part of the the world. So they're gonna yeah they're they're gonna and, and, d- deny her asylum, but at the same time tell her it's too dangerous to go back. Yeah. So yeah. you have the U.S. government saying we're not going to let you in, and you have the United Nations organization saying it's not safe for you to go back, and we're not going to you know you can go back, but you have to go right. back on your own. Well, it, we're not going to participate in putting you in harm's way. And that was the thing I kept running into. It's you see people, because I talked to a lot, not nearly as many as you, but enough that you realize that there's all these people that are just caught in this weird limbo. Like there is no home to go back to in, in a lot of cases. Um, you know, the marketing of the United States is it's the greatest country in the world and there's opportunity here. And so, and that's, that's a global perspective, uh, especially, you know, in, in lower tiered countries. Um, and then they get there and this is, and then they find themselves in kind of in literally one of the most dangerous places in the world. Yeah. Cotton limbo. Um, and that, you know, that was one of the things that was so hard for me to, and I know you've dealt with too. You try to express this to people. This is the reality, but, um, that's not the same narrative that they're getting when they would turn on nightly cable news or whatever. Um, and you, you know, and you also tend to get everything's rosy, and these are just a bunch of angels coming in. Versus, they're all you know, basically terrorists and drug lords trying to take your children. You know, there's no in between. Um, that it's a nuanced group of people who have their own baggage and their own problems, and they're coming in and their needs. And I don't really think there's anything we can do to stop um, people from showing up at our door. Um, 
we just have to have a way to process it. It seems to me that beginning perhaps as early as 2014 that our government, please pass, yeah. our government was making making it more difficult on those wanting to come into the U.S., mm-hmm. thinking that, that that's a disincentive. They're, if, if they see how hard it is, they won't come. Right. It, it didn't work in 2014, and um, it's not working now. There was a surge back in 2014. One of the other things, by the way, that happened is, uh, well, let me just compare. In 2002, I could, I could have a child with me who needed medical care in the U.S. I would drive up to the port of entry, and I'd identify myself and the child and the parent was either there or a representative of the Mexican government was there. And I said, I, I need to take this child to an eye appointment, a specialist in, in Brownsville. I'll be paying for it. And once it's done, I'll be taking them back. I'd pass right through. Mm-hmm. In 2014, during the Obama administration, uh, they started requiring patients of Shriners Hospital in Houston to get visas to go to a medical clinic in La, in La Feria, which is right, right across the border. Uh, th- before that, they had they said, you if you're going to go to the medical clinic, you need to be at the bridge like five o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. and um, which meant for some of them if they were coming from Matamoros they'd have to leave home at two or three in the morning to go on that highway to Reynosa Mm -hmm. just doesn't make any sense just made it more difficult I I got notice from Shriners Hospital that they've closed down that clinic in Laferia now I, I had I sponsored four or five kids. I was there at the clinic, and they'd have I don't know, one or two hundred kids with all sorts of problems that they were helping. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen to them. I I had one child. Um, his name is Sergio. He needed a specialty walker for cerebral palsy, and a beautiful kid, and his. Got them approved by Shriners, had all the paperwork done, and the State Department denied the visa for the mom because she hadn't been working at the same place for a year. So that was three years ago. Then, of course, the coronavirus hit. I I haven't been able to do anything. The kid's gone three years trapped in a wheelchair when maybe we could have got him into a walker. Yeah. Those are some things that are happening because we apparently people believe we got to make it tougher and make them miserable so they won't come here. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I don't know what the solution is. I, I, I just don't believe that you can make it so difficult that they won't the, the decide to stay where they are. Well, and this is one of the things we, 
a lot of fuss was made during the Trump administration. And, and admittedly, they certainly poured gasoline on the problem. But this is not a Trump administration thing. This is a Obama administration, a Trump administration, a Biden administration problem. Like, it's not. Yeah. None, I, I can't, you know, I don't want to say anybody's an angel on this. Or is made. I don't know. I, I don't know enough about the... <clears throat> Department of Homeland Security part of the pie on uh, on detention. Mm-hmm. Uh, Health and Human Services also involved mm-hmm. in detention. They detain the the unaccompanied minors. Mm-hmm. I believe that last year or the year before that they spent over one billion dollars detaining children. And one of the reports I saw was that they detained them for an average of uh, one hundred days. Mm-hmm. Now, Kayla, you met, she was detained for seven years. Yeah, let, let's actually talk about that because Kayla's your entry into this world. And, yeah. and if if one thing will get you fired up, it's that story. Yeah. Um, well, let, what I, what I want to say is is that um, I was going to get to the, the complex, the detention complex. I don't know that much about the Department of Homeland Security. I know a lot of Border Patrol officers a couple of my neighbors, I like them. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they have tough jobs. So I don't know. They're not in the detention part. But they seem to be good people. When I look, when you look at the, the detention complex with respect to minors, which is operated by HHS through the Office of Refugee Resettlement, it's over a billion dollars a year, I think, they're spending. Mm-hmm. Major participants, organizations connected with the Lutheran Church, the Catholic Church, nonprofit organizations like the Young Center, mm-hmm. who all maintain that they're doing what's in the best interest of these children. Okay? Yep. When, when I tried to cross Kayla with the help of Homeland Security, the State Department, and a congresswoman from Fort Worth, Texas in 2011, I didn't even know the unaccompanied minor program existed. Kayla got snared in it by it, and she was in it for for seven years. Uh, Technically, I was bringing her across as a Mm non-relative, but 80% of the children who are being detained by ORR, by our federal government, have a family member in the United States who could take possession of that child if you want to put it that way at the bridge mm-hmm. if they were if they wanted to it's been done by a lawyer here in the in the valley here in the, sometime in 2021 you could reduce the agony and expense for a lot of these kids just by having that family member meet them at the bridge in a place like Brownsville mm-hmm. and take them. You know, if it, the range of reimbursement is $300 to $775, if I recall correctly, for detaining a child. Is that per day? Per day. Yeah. So 100 days is a minimum of $30,000. I submit to you that you could buy an airline ticket <laughs> and and do the administrative task of a direct handoff for 80% of the kids 
and save a lot of money, but more importantly, save a lot of anguish because it's a system that is proven to be abusive of children. In Kayla's case, she's 22 now. She's intellectually challenged as a seizure disorder. Um, the psychiatrist and two psychologists I've talked with about her say that she probably ex- experienced her detention the same way as someone who'd been kidnapped. Uh, we're, she has something called PTSD and some other disorders that we're dealing with that are related to that detention. I'm wondering all over the place, but I, re- I remember after being ignored for almost seven years, the group that was that had possession of Kayla in California uh, said, well, she's going to be 19 soon, and we're afraid that uh, she'll end up in the California system. So if she doesn't really react negatively to you, you can, you can come out and get her, <clears throat> which we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, got her in June of 2018. She'd been detained since June of 2011. Can you, can you go back and say how you met her and then what happened that she got kind of taken away? Oh, well, it's, <laughs> it's funny. I, I have somewhere in the house the prescription slip mm-hmm. for her first dose of anti-seizure medicine I got for her. So I have the exact date that I met her. It was March 9th, 2001. I was, uh, you were in the area where our refuge was Mm -hmm. in those colonias. Back then they were all dirt roads. I was walking on a dirt road one day. Um, and I saw this elderly woman who at that time turned out she was probably 57. Her name was Antonia. And I thought she had a little toddler with her who looked like a wild child. Her hair was all over the place. She was dirty. And she came up to me and asked me to to, to provide anti-seizure medicine for Kayla. That They didn't have money to do it. If you didn't have the anti-seizure medicine, she'd have seizures. Mm-hmm. Already by then, I knew of two cases, one of a three-year-old and another of a 28-year-old mom of three boys who had died from their seizures. So I was scared, and from that point forward, uh, every three weeks I would find Kayla and deliver her anti-seizure medicine. That was for about, did that until summer of 2005. She was basically homeless. Uh, Antonia would go from one family member to the next and there were like four or five different places where she lived. And I had, I got tired of actually of trying to find her. Um, but Antonia was, was wearing out. And in 2005, I said, if you want to come live at the refuge with Kayla, that'd be fine. And she moved in, uh, the, uh, December of 2005, the other two kids that we had taken in had been abandoned. They're still living with me now. Uh, we had them baptized at our refuge. And Antonia came up to me and said, I tried to get Kayla baptized. Uh, 
but the the pastor I went to said she doesn't understand and that would be a waste. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. And so she said, if you can, will you find a way to baptize her? And then she said, if anything ever happens to me, uh, will you take her into your family? I don't think any, I can't trust anyone else to care for Kayla. Actually, it was December 28th, 2005. On this January 12th of 2006, Antonia had what we thought was just a, an infection. We took her to the Pumarejo Hospital and um, she died three days later. <laughs> and all, all of a sudden, Kayla was part of my family. Wow. Uh, I took the lead in teaching her how to speak, which is sort of strange for, since I was learning Spanish to teach her how to speak. We had a word uh, game we played. I'd say excelente. She'd say tremenda. And, you know, I would make up the words and she would repeat them. Yeah. We, can, we can still do it today. Mm-hmm. I, re- I remember that after a month or two, she added a phrase. She said, maravillosamente bien. I was just sh- <laughs> shocked. And so she's, since then, she's a, she talks. In fact, her nickname is Chachalaca. That's a bird that makes a sound. Uh, and she learned to speak English, even though she can't read or write. It's an amazing story on that. Uh, Anyway, uh, from 2006 into 2011, we were just trying to live our lives in that colonia. At times it was difficult, at times it was very rewarding, but when, that, when the conflict between the rival cartels took place in 2010, it might have been triggered by the death of uh, Tony Tormenta who was the head of the Gulf Cartel. I believe he was killed by the Marines November of 2010. Yeah, I think so, November 2010. It, it, got, it got very dangerous. You could hear gunshots, rapid gunfire all the time on the streets. Well, that was the thing with the Saints. Was, they, they, were, they were the bodyguards uh, and former special forces. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I just know that you, I saw some things I, I don't want to really talk about. Let's put it that uh, way. I can, but and yeah. then the threats came in, and uh, one of the guys, one of them stopped one of the guys that worked for us at the refuge. He was he would help elderly guy would help bathe the men who were disabled, and he said, uh, "Well, they came up to me and asked me what where you slept, where your bedroom was, and where the window was." I looked at him and I said, "Well." What do you think that means? He says, I think that means you need to get out of here. <laughs> and I left the next morning. Yeah. Or we did. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't get Kayla across because she wasn't a U.S. citizen. Well, the other two kids we have were U.S. citizens, so we got them across. I contacted Congresswoman Kay Granger, the State Department. I talked to a representative of Homeland Security in Washington, and I said, I need help and I'll do what you want me to do. But Kayla is, she was with a family member for a few days and I said, we can't handle her. Then she was with another family member for another few days and said, we just can't, we can't take care of her. So I was feeling that pressure. Um, 
and the State Department and this group, you know, Homeland Security representative, uh, Congresswoman Kay Granger. She was one of my teachers in high school, by the way. That's how I got to know her. Um, they said, well, just walk her across the bridge and ask for humanitarian parole with Border Patrol, and it's all set up. Uh, the <laughs> uh, It didn't turn out that way. Uh, I had asked permission because I had brought kids across before. Mm-hmm. I always had a Mexican government representative with me with the paperwork done. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to do that. And they said, no, it's not. We don't want to involve them. And I went, I was just so tired and I was so worried. I just did whatever they said to do. Yeah. As I was walking across the bridge, <laughs> I turned off my phone. Like it said, turn off your cell phone. I'll never do that again. Yeah. I got a call from Congresswoman Kay Granger's office that said, stop, go back to Mexico. Do not take Kayla into the United States. Yeah. They, the Mexican government had gotten wind of this, and they were not happy, apparently. Uh, and I just picked her up. Ten minutes before, the State Department picked her up where she was and brought her to the bridge. They said, we're not going to walk across the bridge with you, but you're, you'll have to walk her across yourself. I went, what? <sighs> so why don't you make it more difficult? <laughs> right, right. So anyway, they detained her. And um, along the way, what... Uh, and she was how old at this point? 11. Okay. With the mentality of like a three-year-old. Okay. Along the way, other uh, some complaints were manufactured against my wife and me about our treatment of the kids, and uh, tried for seven years to, to clear that up, trying to get the specifics on that, and, and never really could do it because uh, ORR refused, and its contractors refused to talk with us. Um, ORR told one of the groups, two of the groups, I believe, that not to talk with us, one being associated with the Lutheran Church, another one associated with uh, maybe HIAS or some other nonprofit lawyer group, and possibly the Young Center, all of whom, (laughs) if you look at their Websites will probably tell you, well, we're here to act in the best interest of people. Right. But how can you do that when they wouldn't even talk to us? And I, <clears throat> I get the feeling that in the end, we got Kayla out of an OR contractor in California because they failed to become her guardians as corporate guardian. Now, I've never heard of this. I don't know if it's done elsewhere, but in Texas, I don't think a corporation can be a guardian for it, for anyone. It's usually a human being, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, but in California, they tried to do that, and the um, the judge kicked it out. That's how we found her. One of the lawyers that was helping me did a nationwide search to find her name in court hearings and found out that this group in California had tried to make her their ward i guess to get government funding i don't know but yeah. but like i said before it looked like the money was going to run out and uh, one of the people there told me that 
this is what I learned about disability payments that if she were if she were eligible for disability payments it'd be eight hundred dollars a month and that that wouldn't even cover two days at our shelter as they called it right so anyway that's that's kind of the story it's uh I've never we got Kayla back but the but the ORR people and their contractors have never really interviewed us and if you go to their website they say we'll interview you within a matter of days Mm -hmm. they just refuse to do it so do you have any idea why uh one of the lawyers we used in San Antonio said they viewed me as a challenge to their power and that, what is that game, whack-a-mole or something like that? Every mm-hmm. time you raise your head, they're going to hit you on the head. Gotcha. I looked at her and I went, I have no idea what you just said or why you're saying that. I'm, I've been very courteous. I, the application I've given, I ended up giving to the ORR was 100 pages long. I, I I put in there all sorts of psychological evaluations, and um, in this process, the the OR contractor in Philadelphia associated with the Lutheran Church initiated what ended up being three visits from Texas Department of Child Protective Services Mm -hmm. to come out and investigate us. They were worried about the other two children we had. And I... um, after the third visit, I said, uh, you know, you keep giving me these letters saying everything's okay. If, if, they'd come, if they come up with a fourth reason for coming back, what's going to happen? Because they're pretty disturbing. On the third, second one, they just went to the school where the kids were mm-hmm. and showed up and said, we've got to talk to you. They were terrified. Uh, the, uh, they were like in elementary school. It's pretty for baseless things, and uh, well, that the Jose Ledesma is the guy's name. He said from Texas Department Protective or uh, Child Protective Service, whatever they're called. He said, "We're just going to ignore them. We have better. We have real things to look after." <laughs> he, he said. He looked at me. and said, "I don't know what you've done." <laughs> <laughs> the uh, lawyer that I used in Philadelphia. Uh, said that he believed that they had harmed Kayla and they knew it and they were trying to hide it. Now, we know that there is a report of abuse when she was in Chicago in the summer of 2011. We know there's a police report from something that happened with her in Philadelphia. Um, A judge, a federal judge, told us that she was suffering from major depression and was not showing much improvement. But then three weeks later, he's, he wrote back and said, oh, everything's fine. I've never heard of anyone who's recovered from major depression in three weeks. But right. um, And she'd been hospitalized a couple of times because they couldn't get her seizures under control. I don't know. Did the... the uh, Nonprofit lawyer who was hired to represent Kayla's interest in Philadelphia knows the lawyer that I was using up in Philadelphia, and he said, "He said uh, I don't know why I don't know why Kayla isn't with the Coxes." 
and he, he admitted that the ORR had told him not to cooperate with us. Now, I'm just going to go off on a, a tangent here for a second. I've already mentioned that maybe as many as 80% of the children crossing the border without their parents could be assigned or given directly to a family member in the U.S. that's already established mm-hmm. right at the bridge. Right. That'd save a lot of anguish and a lot of money. But if they're going to continue the system they've got underway right now, the Young Center says we represent the group that will act in the best interest of the child. ORR says the same thing. The, the contractors say that. Oops. But in the end, if ORR can tell a lawyer who's hired to represent the best interest of Kayla, mm-hmm. and ORR can tell the Department of Justice basically not to cooperate with us, and uh, Department of Justice should be acting in the best interest of Kayla as well, even though she's not a U.S. citizen, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong w- with their structure. I don't know what the solution to that is. I don't think it's going to be found with the Catholic Church's nonprofit organization, the Lutheran Church's nonprofit organization, and these other nonprofits. It's going to be found by someone, uh, a lawyer, who says, I'm going to represent the best interests of a person like Kayla. I'm going to talk to the people who've been trying to get her back for years. I'm going to find out on my own. I'm not going to get participate in this, what do you call it, Chinese whispers or the telephone game. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to participate in that. That should have taken place. It will not take place as long as ORR is dictating what will be done or not be done by a lawyer or any other organization who should be acting in the best interest of Kayla. The Young Center refused to talk to us. The Lutherans refused refuse to talk with us. There's something wrong with that. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with it, especially when there is a an organization like ORR, the people there were complaining that they were overworked, they couldn't really devote the attention to us that they needed to, or, or they can make mistakes. Uh, it's not the way it should be. It's got to be different. I, as an adult, I just recently became Kayla's guardian. Uh, I had to hire a lawyer to do that, and then I had to pay another lawyer who represented Kayla's interest in the court. And he came by here on a couple occasions and asked a lot of questions. I answered them, and this was just last fall, and, and I, I became her guardian. I started the process in August, and by November, I had the guardianship. It was done the right way. This lawyer, who I, I, I well, I paid the court. The court paid him. Mm-hmm. He answers to the court, mm-hmm. and and he's supposed to do what's best for Kayla. And he told me, "I'm here. I represent Kayla. Right. I'm going to do what's best for Kayla." And at the and I didn't know till the end. He says, "I believe it's in her best interest for you to be her guardian," but it. I can't say that I, I don't if he was influenced by someone else I, I it'd be a surprise to me he did it 
based on being a lawyer and knowing what his job is. This guy in Philadelphia, <clears throat> the lawyer up there, oh, okay, I'm not supposed to talk to these people who've applied to be Kayla's sponsor. I won't talk to her, even though I think it might, it's in her best interest to be with him. I won't talk to them. That alone, <laughs> that alone should, uh, should, should be changed. Yeah. There's, and, and it, it, when I started thinking about that, I started thinking about these, some of the people I met that were asylum seekers who were being interviewed on probable, whatever they call it, credible case by the same people who are detaining them. It just doesn't make sense to me. Right. So I, my, my thinking is, is to take what we've got and try to rehabilitate it. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything that we can do to rehabilitate the decision-making coming out of Washington, D.C. I just don't see it. So I, I'm not going to even, I, I have, I have, <laughs> I had a lawyer from El Paso uh -huh. who was helping me who used to be the immigration lawyer, president of the United States, whatever. And I noticed that she'd written something back in 2001 or two rather about Homeland Security. And it's about 17 or 18 pages long. I started reading it and I went, this lady's brilliant. She knows what she's talking about. Her name is Kathleen Campbell Walker, by the way. She's really, really bright. And she, <laughs> she outlined in 2002 something that, that should have been addressed then. Yeah. Uh, but I also noticed that the thing is too far complicated for me to think through. And I, I really doubt the ability of the present administration to think anything through on immigration other than to continue with the with the idea, I suppose, that they think that they can make it tough enough that no one will come. And I just don't think that's true. What is it? Okay, last question, just so we can kind of wrap up. Uh -huh. uh, what is it that you wish, as someone who spent the past 20 years here, um, what is it that you wish people knew? That, like, what fallacies are existing? That, like, what are people believing that just aren't true? Or what do you just, what do they just not know that you wish they knew? I can't answer that. I, I don't believe there's one person that I know that whatever they're thinking about immigration and what's going on, there's not one person I know that if they went with me and sat for a day or two like you did at our refuge, mm -hmm. who wouldn't be profoundly changed. Yeah. Uh, a year and a half ago, maybe uh, eight or nine very intelligent, attractive-looking, well-dressed people from Washington, D.C. came from Homeland Security or whatever. They asked me to talk with them. The f person following me to talk with them was Jody Goodwin, who's one of the best lawyers around, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Uh, they were they were so full of their own assumptions about things. Their questions were leading that way, and I and I, and I, I wanted to say to them, if you went with me and sat down and asked these questions of the people at our refuge, um, I think you would completely change your thinking. But mm -hmm. they were so confident 
and sort of just assumed away problems left and right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's so much money in this, billions and billions of dollars. I don't, I don't know how they're going to deal with it, but I, I do know this. I don't think I know anyone. I have some friends who are uh, anti-immigrants, but I believe that if they sat there with me for a day or two, let me translate for them if they don't speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. Or if we need to get someone who speaks French or Creole or for the people from those parts of the country, uh, they'd, they'd be profoundly changed. Were you changed by being with us for a while? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, it was, there was a point for me, and, you know, you're talking about it was, it was hard to sleep at night. Um, for me, do, when I was doing interviews, like one tragedy story started running into the next tragedy story. And it was yeah. just like, and you just start thinking, like, how bad can it be? And then somebody pulls out their cell phone and starts showing you photos of how bad it can be. Yeah. Um, but in, I don't know if you remember this. You you recorded it, the uh, worship service. Mm-hmm. There was a group from Methodist Church in Mansfield, Texas, who, who were there. The group was, or other. Yeah. And uh, they were doing this, I don't know, communion service, whatever it was. And then the, <laughs> the people from Africa mm-hmm. got up unrehearsed. And, you know, they had their time to do something, and they sang. Yep. I went... Any idea that we have we we have God on our side, and we're going to show you who God is. That should that would leave your mind. The spirituality of the the depth, the worship that they brought. Wow, I'll never forget that. You've sent me a copy of that mm-hmm. video. I think once or twice. I keep losing it for some reason. Every now and then, I want to I want to go back to that. I want to show it to people, mm-hmm. and it 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 changes you. I went to, back when I was working for the Methodist Church, too, when I was working for the Arkansas Conference, they sent me to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Oh, yeah. And I spent, like, three weeks there. And we were in this remote village, but there was a lot of the same, a lot, it was just after the Civil War had ended. So, um, there was a lot of, there was still a lot of fallout there, but there was, it was the singing. Like, we were, there was a church right across the street from where we were, and, uh probably 50 or 60 and I think they were mostly teenagers would go practice in the afternoon but they would just be doing these amazing harmonies yeah and I was just and I just the thing that I came away from that was seeing how life was for them and there um and the amount of joy that was still present and I just I just I came I remember coming home going we have a lot to learn yeah we there's a lot that can be learned from from these folks of those people singing at our refuge that day yeah. two of the women told me how they were raped yeah and they could get up and i i don't know it uh if what is the message gosh it could be there's so many things that could be out there number one i confess i just don't know enough but I believe that any nonprofit organization or for-profit organization that participates in the detention complex in the U.S., whether run, run by Homeland Security or by Health and Human Services, mm-hmm. they, should, they should disclose how much money they're receiving, 
every year and how much they've received over the last 20 years and what they're doing. Yeah. I think they should do that one. And I, I think smart people will say, well, maybe we can spend that money better. I think they'll go, Oh, instead of paying a half a million dollars to the Lutherans for the, the next year, why don't we, why don't we put direct placement of unaccompanied minors with their kids? Mm-hmm. More importantly, whether I don't care if it's Democrat or Republican or whatever, the actions for several years are putting children at risk. You won't believe what they see in those encampments, what they experience along the way. Uh, but once they, all, all I know is about Matamoros and, um, I can't keep them safe. I, you, frankly, <laughs> for what we do and have been done since 2018, if we received compensation like the detention centers receive in the U.S., mm-hmm. it'd be it would be north of twelve million dollars. It'd be north, of, and I, I would gladly run a detention center <laughs> my way, and for. 50, 60, 100 people. I think for $12 million, I can make that work. And I think they would be safe. But uh, whatever people know or think they know, they should challenge themselves on it for the sake of the children at a minimum because they're being destroyed. They're being destroyed. I feel like that's a good place to stop. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Larry. Yeah.
my low cost don't pay.